morning, church. Um, Our reading for today is from Ephesians chapter 4, starting at verse 25 and going through verse 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let us each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hand so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give the grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you among all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning to all of you. Really glad that you're here. Just want to add my greeting. I want to say especially to you Splash kids who are with us today, Uh, We're really glad that you're in the service with us. My sermon this morning is actually for you as well as for the adults, so we really want to include you in it. So in 1988, a man by the name of Robert Fulgham wrote a best-selling book that was entitled All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. It's a great book, and uh, the, the big idea is that life's lessons are not learned in an ivory tower, but they're learned in the sandbox, where you learn to play in the sandbox. And so what's gonna happen? We talked about new life last week. Now we're talking about the new community. The community is our sandbox. It's where we learn life's lessons. In fact, I would go so far as to say this. By the way, that book by Robert Fulgham was a bestseller, New York Times bestseller for two years. The passage that we're gonna read today, I think it's safe to say, at least this has been my experience, all I ever needed to know about relationships I learned from this passage. And my hope today is that you will make this passage and what it teaches part of your personal, mental, bestseller list for the rest of your life because it very well may save your marriage, it may save your, it may save your friendships, and it may save your church. This passage on the new community is that significant. So I want to begin with a question, I want to involve all of you in this. You'll notice in your bulletin to the page just to the right of the scripture reading, there is a diagram that asks this question. How do you enter into community? So if you're taking notes, I'd like you to, I want to give you four words or phrases, one for each quadrant right now, to help you think about how you enter into community. So this is like an x-ray for us. We got to go, we got to do the x-ray before we're ready for the cure and the teaching of the passage. So four ways that people 
typically enter into community. The first one is the upper left-hand quadrant. I'd like you to write in the word isolation. Isolation. Now, that's not exactly entering into community, but there are people who prefer isolation, sometimes for good reasons. It might be because they've been hurt in the past. It might be that they need a break from people. But there are people, whether for good reasons or bad, might choose isolation. So some people might land there. And some of you today might in your life feel that you are, if not physically isolated, emotionally isolated. You may feel that because of COVID, you're at home, you wish you could be here, you feel quarantine type of isolation. Isolation is not good for the church. That's one of the real downsides of this pandemic all around the world is how it has resulted in isolation and all the, if, if there's one thing we've learned, isolation is not where we wanna stay. So then the upper right-hand quadrant is the second one and what I'd like you to write in that quadrant is pseudo-community. Now here's how this works. When you're in isolation, you realize that God created you for community, so you wanna move into some kind of community where you can have relationships. But here's what we often do in community, is we don't bring our real self into community, we bring our ideal self into community. You might say that upper right quadrant is kind of like all grace but no truth. I'm just really nice to everybody, but nobody really knows me. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows my story. That would be pseudo-community. Not always bad. When you're new to a, a school or a group or an office or whatever, you don't walk into it bearing your soul. So there's, there's, a, there's a time where it's okay to be there. But after a while, pseudo-community, especially if I'm leading a double life, especially if I'm leading if I'm a poser, if I'm leading a fake life, it's very, very tiring to keep up that facade. And so I yearn for, for um, genuine community or genuine relationships and a place where I can be honest. And so that leads to the third quadrant. It's the lower left quadrant. We're gonna call that quadrant negative community, negative community. Because we go through this, some, this thing sometimes where we go, I'm so tired of fake church and fake news and fake Facebook and fake everything and doggone it, I'm just gonna be real and I'm gonna be authentic. And where that can lead to sometimes is negative community that is destructive in the form of gossip or malice or slander or tearing people down. So that's what happens with negative community. Negative community divides the church. Negative community divides families. Negative community divides the country. And, but it's so tempting to live there because we want honesty, we want to be real, we want to be heard. And sometimes in order to build ourselves up, we tear others down, that's negative community. And then there's a fourth quadrant, the lower white quadrant. We're just gonna call that the new community. It's gospel community, it's transformational community. That lower left one, negative community, might be all truth but no grace. So in the new community, that lower white quadrant, it's the integration of grace and truth. It's the hardest thing to do, but it is the type of community that the gospel teaches us. It is the type of community that's healthy. It is the type of community that actually changes us. So my question for you is right now, as you relate to uh, to the community around you, would you say that you're currently in isolation? 
Are you in pseudo-community? Are you a negative community? Are you experiencing the new community? It's, a, it's an x-ray. It's an x-ray of your experience. Now, I don't want this to feel like a test or an exam because there's something about our nature that just wants to justify ourselves and have works righteousness. In the light of the gospel, we, we actually, all of us in this room, can admit that throughout our lives, we bounce between those four quadrants. I don't think there's any of us that stay in the fourth quadrant, the new community. Sometimes we, we do practice negative community or pseudo community or isolation. So you're gonna bounce around a little bit, but what's helpful is to be honest about where you're at and then ask this question, how do I move into that lower right quadrant, the gospel community, the new community? What is that like? How do I experience that? But that's the, that's the Robert Fulgham sandbox for us and for Paul in this passage is this new community because the new life that we talked about last week is worked out in relationships. That's why this passage, this is why I want it to be on your bestseller list for the rest of your life. This is why this passage could save your marriage, it could save your friendships, and it could save your church. So what are the marks of the new community? Well, there are five of them, and we're gonna go through them kind of in rapid style. And as we, go, as we go through, you're gonna catch on, like all of these have some sizzle. All of these are really powerful. All of these are really challenging. So let's talk about the five, okay? So it's a five-point outline, but we're gonna do it in sort of machine gun style. I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on every point, but I want you to get all five of these. And interestingly enough, that style of quickly saying them, that's what Paul does in this letter. That's what he does. He says, I'm gonna give you five things, but if you read it, you'd be done in two minutes, done with this passage. But he gives you five things, you guys, that are gold, that you wanna think about, that you wanna carry around in your life. So number one, here we go, you ready? Number one, the first mark of the new community is honest speech. Honest speech. Look at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood. Now, falsehood, the word there for falsehood, I looked it up in the original language of the New Testament, which is Greek. Do you know what the word is for falsehood here? Pseudo. Pseudo. You look it up, it's pseudo. See, a lot of you guys were wondering when I said pseudo-community, you said, Mike, is that really in the Bible? We just found it right here, pseudo-community. So Christians have a healthy relationship with truth, or they're supposed to. Earlier last week we read that the truth is in Jesus. So as Christians, the truth matters to us. The truth about God, the truth about the world around us, and you guys, here's the hard one, the truth about ourselves. But he says... Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. You know, that whole thing about the truth about ourselves, I learned a lesson about this in my life when I was uh, in my first year of marriage. Molly and I got married, I was 24 years old, so I was probably 25 when Molly and I had this conversation. Now Molly's the kind of person who, um, I've got a friend who uses this phrase, bringing truth into the mix. 
So like you're mixing, mixing it up. And Molly's the kind of person that pretty much every day brings truth into the mix for my life. It doesn't mean that I always respond well to it. So one night at age 25, our first year of marriage, we were out on a date at a restaurant. You know, she looked at me and she said, Mike, how come you never ask me about me? Now, I've never forgotten that. Mike, how come you never ask me about me? Now, what is she saying? I'll tell you what she's saying. She's saying, Mike, how come you never ask me about me? That's what she's saying. Now, what she really means by that, I think, is she's saying, first of all, she might be saying, Mike, you're pretty selfish because basically you're talking about you and you have not really shown, you have not loved me enough to be interested in what's happening in my life. Now, have you guys ever had a wife like that? Said something like that to you? That's what, that's what she was, I think she was saying to me. Number two, she wanted, my wife wanted to connect not just to the ideal me, but to the real me. She wanted to have a real conversation. And so since that time, I found this really cool book that talked about five levels of transparency. Now listen to these five levels, it's really good. First of all is common courtesy. It's what you say when you're going through Publix and somebody says, you know, did you find everything? And you, you say, and, and then, you know, it's just common courtesy. Yes, I found everything. Uh, you could go, I'm really mad at this store for the stuff I couldn't find. I'm, I'm going through a hard time right now. Could we talk? But you don't do that. That's common courtesy. It's normal. It's great. Second level is news, sports, and weather. News, sports, and weather. So that's another thing that's really valid. Is Tom Brady uh, the greatest of all time. That's a really good topic to talk about, and it's a good icebreaker, and so that's, that's the second level of transparency. Get this one, though. Third level of transparency is opinions. Now, opinions are kind of hard to do, especially in today's climate, because in, in an opinion you go, you might want to say, I have a different view than you, or I disagree with you. But that's actually, in a, in a gospel community, in a truthful community, you're not just being fake all the time, but you're actually being honest. You're saying, hey, I have a different view, and then you can talk about that. That's a third level of transparency when you can have an honesty, we can have a good fight, you can have a good disagreement. Let me give you a fourth level of transparency. And this one, you guys, this was the one that really, really walloped me. It's, it's the level of emotion. Did you know that as we are made in the image of God, that God created us with emotion? One of the things that Molly experienced about me early in our marriage and perhaps sometimes today is in my family of origin, I did not have it modeled for me how to understand my emotions, how to talk about emotions. Uh, in fact, a lot of things about my family of origin made me just want to stuff my emotions. So in a way, in our first years of marriage, Molly encountered a pseudo Mike. Now, Molly understood emotions. She loved talking about emotions, but whenever she did, it would threaten me. She might say that she's hurting, she's depressed, or whatever it might be. I just want to fix it. So one of the things I learned from that level of transparency, that's the fourth one, I think, is to, when I come home from work, rather than just lie down on the sofa and read a magazine or kind of get lost in my own world, 
not just report the news, sports, and weather to my wife, but tell her what happened in my day and then try to tell her how I felt about it. This happened and I felt ashamed. This happened and I felt proud. This happened and I felt threatened. This happened and it made, it made me angry. This happened and it made me sad. You see the language of emotion and so, so my wife really wanted to be able to connect to the real me, not just the pseudo me. Fifth level of transparency is just total transparency. And by the way, it's like an inverted triangle. You know, you're gonna be like this wide on common courtesy, then this wide on new sports and weather, then this wide on opinions, maybe this wide on emotions, right? Because you wanna be around safe people, maybe this wide on total transparency. So the Bible doesn't, you don't have to spill your guts and tell all your sins to everybody. That's, that's, not, that's not how community really works. You wanna create a safe uh, environment for grace and truth to flourish and grow. So that's the first thing, um, honest speech. Let's go to the second one. Second one here, the second mark of this new community, which I believe is also very life-changing I'm gonna, we're gonna call it honest handling of anger. Honest handling of anger. Look at verse 26, it says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. You know, when I first heard uh, these points in this passage, it was, gosh, it must have been a seminary class in 1990 and it was on marriage counseling. And it was, it was on kind of knowing some really, some really good principles here. But I'll never forget what I heard in that class that was said about anger. It said, this passage normalizes anger. In other words, conflict will happen in your marriage, in your family, in your church. The Bible actually normalizes it in a way that is really refreshing. Did you notice this quote by Tim Keller that was in the bulletin? He said, people are messy, therefore relationships are messy. Don't be surprised by messiness. I don't know about you, but I'm really encouraged by that. Because there's a lot of times when I'm messy around my wife or around other people. And so this passage normalizes anger, it normalizes conflict, and so don't, you know, you don't need to fall into despair that you sort of lost it. But notice in this passage that Paul gives three sort of limits. It's kind of like bowling. You want to get that ball down the middle, but you got those, you know, if you, you know if, when children are bowling, you've got those little buffers on the side so it doesn't go off the side. So what Paul does is he, he really wisely puts in these buffers related to anger. So one, he says, be angry and do not sin. So that as Molly and I were raising children, and all you kids, you've probably been through this where you have conflict with your, your brother, your sister, your friends. Um, Molly used to explain this to me in raising our children is that we wanted them to be healthy emotionally. We, we wanted them to understand their emotions, to grow up in a different kind of house than the one home that the one I was raised in. So when the kids get angry, I would just tell them, I just like, stuff it, get rid of it. Molly would do something a little bit different. She would say to a child, and, it, and, and this is called containment, she'd say, you know what, I understand that you're angry. It's okay to feel angry. It's not okay to throw your sister against the wall. 
So the Bible says be angry, but do not sin. Now to me that's really refreshing. Second qualification on anger that you see in this passage is not to let the sun go down on your anger. Now one of the challenges with COVID is there's a lot of people that have had conflict that are just letting it fester. The sun has gone down many, many times and you have people in your life who you need to be reconciled to where there's been, been this anger that has persisted and festered in your heart. The Bible says don't let the sun go down on that. In other words, it doesn't have to be by nightfall, uh, but, it, but at some point, don't let it fester. Don't let it stay there too long but go to the person and be reconciled. Do you need to do that with somebody? Third, third boundary that, that Paul puts in is um, don't give the devil an opportunity. So here's a big thing that, that I've realized. Okay, if I, don't, I hope I'm not the only person here who struggles with anger, but something happens to me when I get angry. I, my clothes tear my body grows, my skin turns green, and suddenly I am hulking out, and I am, a, I am not good Mike at that point. I am dangerous Mike, I am destructive Mike. And here's the thing, you guys, off to the side, the devil wants to gain a foothold, and the Bible says he gets a foothold through untreated anger. Interesting thing, the, uh, the Shiflets and especially their son Bear have in their home, have you guys seen this? They have a snake. It's a, it's a python called, named Fireball. Now this happens to be a very domesticated snake, so don't worry about it. Garrison's a, like, he's amazing. He can, you know, he takes a snake out and plays with it. I'm like, I don't want to touch that thing. But this is like a really cool snake. This is great. But then I learned something. We were over at their house one time for a party, and we were having all this explained to us. You know what that snake eats? I think the snake, eat, snake eats rats or something like that. Now, these rats, the snake is like them. I mean, it's pretty long, pretty big, you know. By the way, bear is like carrying them around, wrapping them around. You know, I'm like, I'd never do that. But what happens with that snake when it's hungry, and it I think he only eats like every few weeks or once a month or something like that. I could never do that. But you, you put a rat in that cage and that snake is just ready for that. Fireball? I mean, that snake might be like way bigger than the mouth, but Fireball knows exactly what to do. He's going to squeeze that, that, that rat, I meant, the, the, the rat or the mice or whatever, squeeze it take it in, chew on it. But when it comes to food, fireball is ready to strike. When it comes to anger, the devil wants to gain a foothold in our lives. It's good to know that. It's good to know that because in our lives, some of our relationships, the anger spins out of control, doesn't it? And you go, wow, suddenly it became destructive. Bible talks about honest handling of anger. Number three, third one that you see in this passage, aren't these amazing? Okay, here's a third one. He says, uh, it's generosity, by the way. It's in verse 28, generosity. But he says, let the thief no longer steal, 
but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, why would Paul be warning about thieves? Well, it may, as, as one commentator says, this may give us some insight into Paul's first readers. They were um, the working poor. It was an agricultural society. Income happened in seasons. And so there were employees that would be tempted to to steal secretly from their employer in order to get, and, and not get, get caught for doing that. So there's ways that we steal, like you know what that's like, there's ways that we could be tempted with that. So, so this says, steal no longer, get a job, work with your hands, make some money, and then the goal is that you might give to those in need, the goal is generosity. So that's where the gospel takes this good thing of work and makes it better. The gospel pluses things. So one of the things that we've seen in this church over the last year is how you guys have really been a fulfillment of this verse because um, it's, it's, it's just been phenomenal. Number one, as a church, because of your generosity, we finished the year with a positive account balance. On top of that, we set up a COVID relief, Deacon's Relief Fund, that has released $30,000 to people who have lost jobs, people have fallen on hard times during COVID, and God has used the generosity of this church. So that's, the th that's one of the third things you wanna see in a gospel community is this really healthy generosity. Now let's go on to the fourth one. Generosity is the third one. The fourth one, we're gonna call this one constructive speech, and you're gonna see why in a minute. Constructive speech, look at verse 29. Verse 29, fourth mark of, God, of the new community. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, that's the constructive part, constructive speech, as it fits the occasion so that it may give grace to those who hear. So let no corrupting speech come out of your mouth. Uh, this, is a, this, is, this is really sour speech. So a good example of this, and there's a lot of ways that we as Christians can fall into it without not looking too bad, but one is sarcasm. Sarcasm is a way of just kind of tearing others down to make us look good. Winston Churchill was especially good at sarcasm. Uh, he was the prime minister of Britain during World War II, but he had his enemies didn't bother him. One of his, his political enemies, enemies was a woman by the name of Lady Astor. And one night at a party, Lady Astor looked up at, at, at Churchill and she said, Mr. Churchill, if you were my husband, I would put poison in your coffee. <laughs> Churchill looked back at Lady Astor and said, Lady Astor, if I were your husband, I would drink it. On another occasion, Lady Astor was talking to Churchill and said, uh, Mr. Churchill, you're drunk. Churchill looked back at her and through slurred speech, looked at Lady Astor and said, Lady Astor, I might be drunk, but tomorrow morning I'll be sober and you'll still be ugly. Now, see, that's sarcastic speech. You don't, wanna, you don't wanna fall into that type of speech. In fact, one time Churchill got an invitation from the famous playwright George Bernard Shaw about the opening of his new play in the West End of London. And so he got this invitation with two tickets about for opening night at George Bernard Shaw's play. 
And uh, the, the, the note went something like this, uh, Dear Mr. Churchill, please find and close an invitation to opening night. I've enclosed two tickets so that you can bring a friend, if you have one. So Churchill wrote a note back to George Bernard Shaw and said, I want to thank you for your kind invitation to the opening night. I cannot make it to the opening night, but I will plan to come the second night if you have one. Really good, really good, good sarcasm. But the Bible, the Bible teaches something different. It teaches constructive speech and building others up. And the one, of, one of the things that you guys need to know is that everybody in this church, and this is a mark of, a, of, a, of the new community, everybody needs encouragement. Everybody needs building up. It says in this verse that, that, that we would give grace to those who hear. What does it mean when it talks about giving grace in our relationships? Well, it's using constructive speech to give empowering and strengthening grace to people for the tasks of life that God has called them to. I want to give you a really uh, a quote that has stuck with me about the importance of constructive speech. Words, words of encouragement, words of gratitude, words of affirmation for people. Ian McLaren said this, he said, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. Number five, number five, honest forgiveness, honest forgiveness. And you guys, this is really the punchline. This is the gospel. This is the power that is in this passage. Look at what he says about forgiveness. He talks in verse 30 about not grieving the Holy Spirit. Then verse 31, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Now let me ask you a question. Have you ever experienced bitterness before? Have you ever experienced how poisonous bitterness can be? I have a, a story in my life. I've had probably many times when I've struggled with bitterness, but there was a time years ago when a close friend wronged me. And I remember lying awake at night, rehearsing arguments with that person, and I probably went through six months of bitterness. Bitterness is poison to the soul. Let me tell you two things I learned about bitterness during that six-month period. One is it's really hard to get rid of. It is so hard to get rid of it when you're feeling that. You can't just banish it from your emotions and from your mind. Really hard to do. Paul says, put these things aside. Um, second thing I learned, though, is that bitterness is actually corrosive to my soul, and it's hurting me more than it's hurting the other person. I'm, I'm, I'm working out all this anger, but it's all being directed in on me. So it makes sense to get rid of bitterness. Now, look at these other words that you notice there in verse 31, because bitterness is a little bit like COVID. You know, have you noticed with COVID now, it's got these variants from like the UK and South Africa. You go, shoot. You know, we've had, now we've got variants, right? Bitterness has variants. Sin has variants. That's why you guys, you've got to realize 
You need us to talk about sin. I need to talk about sin. We've got to face it. You've got to face stuff like this because it has variants. It's bad for you. It's bad for me. It's bad for all of us. I say, gosh, why does the Bible so concerned about sin? Because it's bad for you. It's a virus. It has variants. And look at these variants that you see here. Bitterness and then wrath and anger and clamor and slander, which is speaking ill of people, destroying their reputation. Let them all be put away from you, along with all malice, wishing ill of people. It's like we said last week, you did not learn Christ in these ways. But then he says something really cool. Look at verse 32. He says, be kind to one another. This is the honest forgiveness of the new community, right here in verse 32. Be kind to one another, one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. The word for kind in the Greek is krestos, and it's really close to Christos. And so what a cool thought to think of kindness being Christ-like, be kind. And then tenderhearted, I think that phrase tenderhearted has been deleted from a lot of our, a lot of our Bibles. Because we've, one of the things that's been lost in today's culture is empathy. I was in a conversation with some people that were on two ends, we were talking about this person and this person being on two ends of the political spectrum. And I was talking to one of the people and the person was asking this question, you know, this person keeps sending me these articles and I, gotta, I, need, I need some arguments and some articles to send back to them because I feel like what they're sending me is really fake news and it's wrong and they're believing the wrong things and they're sending me these articles and you know, what do I say to deal with this? And I, I find a lot of people are in that spot where you just, like, you just keep arguing in circles. So one of the things that we discussed, one of the things I suggested to this person as we were talking is I said this. I said, what if you tried, what if you started with empathy, which is tenderheartedness? What if you started with empathy? What if you said, you, what if you said these words to the person? And how do you think it'd make them feel if you said, you know what? I just appreciate the love that you have for our country. I just know that everything you're saying is because you love this country. And what, what if you said, you have a lot of good points. I mean, you have a lot of good reasons for what you believe. And boy, this is hard. It's easy to fight about. And you know, I'm just trying to win, but maybe I need to listen more. And what if, and, and just on and on, and just empathy with that person and just let it sit and not try to win. What do you think? that person would feel like, they'd feel like, what planet am I on? No one is doing this these days. And then, what's really interesting about empathy is it, it sort of releases this tightened up coil that people carry around where they're just ready to strike back. Like that's, we talk about, you know, snakes can strike, and like, but we, we get that way. We just want, we have this coil just all tightened up. So what if, what if empathy kind of loosened up stuff, tender-hearted? And then he says, forgiving one another. The word for forgiving there is a really cool word because normally the word for forgiveness in the Bible is one that is like remi removing sins, remission of sins. This one is a different word, and it really means um, acting in grace towards one another. Actually, the word grace, charis, is in this word. 
And so what it's really saying is that the lavish grace that, that the whole book of Ephesians has been talking about, this, this lavish grace is what Christ has given to you. So he goes on and says, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. So sometimes with me, with um, like bitterness, one of the things that is really important for me to understand is to think back to how Christ has forgiven me and realize God has called me to extend forgiveness to that, that other person that I believe has harmed me. Now, I wanna say a word about forgiveness because I believe that this is very difficult. Several things, number one, forgiveness is not saying that what the person did to you was right. It's actually looking it in the face and recognizing that it's wrong. So that's the first thing. You're not, especially you guys, in cases of physical or verbal abuse, stuff like that, forgiveness doesn't mean that you dismiss what was, what was done wrong. Secondly, forgiveness doesn't mean not having boundaries. There are times in life where people are so hurtful where we just kind of need to draw a line and say, I'm not gonna go there. Forgiveness does not mean not having bound, boundaries. And then thirdly, forgiveness is quite often not instant. It takes time for us to get there. So sometimes we think it's just a snap of the fingers, but it takes time. But part of that process is embracing the gospel and the strength that comes from the Holy Spirit, the strength from the gospel to realize, look at how God in Christ has forgiven me. C.S. Lewis said this about forgiveness. I love this, I love this quote, he says, forgiveness goes beyond human fairness. Isn't that amazing? I mean, when I'm going through bitterness, what I want is fairness. I want to get back, I want revenge. Forgiveness leaves revenge to God. Forgiveness goes beyond human fairness. It is pardoning those things that can't really be pardoned at all. It's just so hard. But it's pardoning the things that can't be hardened, pardoned at all because we're entrusting justice and revenge. We're letting go of that and entrusting that to God, and that is so powerful. But you see the gospel here, the gospel motive is the grace that we have in Christ. Wow, you might be wondering, gosh, what do we do with these, these five things? Well, let me give you a suggestion, may I? I've, I've been thinking about this. I said earlier that these five things could save your marriage, they could save your friendships, and they could save your church, and that I want them to be on your mental bestseller list for the rest of your life. Well, that's a pretty, that's a pretty strong challenge. But here's what I think you can do, is make sure you know these five things, and maybe even this week, Take one a day, Monday through Friday, and just kind of meditate on that verse and pray about situations in your life where you might apply it. So it might be that in some of your relationships, you need to start bringing your real self into relationships. It might be that you've been angry, but you've sinned, and you need to ask forgiveness. You need to go to somebody and ask for forgiveness for your anger. Maybe that's something you just need to, to do that. Maybe you, you need to realize that your, street, your speech has not been constructive, it's been destructive. You've been talking about people and talking down to people and you've got your inner Churchill going. But what would it be like if you, if you, if you thought this way, who are the people in my life and what kind of verbal encouragement can I give to them? How can I build them up? Wouldn't that be amazing if you thought about practicing that in community? 
What if you, and then finally, is there somebody, you guys, that you need to forgive that, and you know you can't do it in your own strength. You need, you need the help of Christ to do it. We're going to sing about that in a moment. It'll take time. Don't despair because Satan tempts you to despair. Don't despair because you're there. But the means of grace, your union with Christ, over time in worship and fellowship, let God work in your life. So take these five things, pray about them, think about them. If you, if you are sitting here thinking, you know, I didn't realize what was gonna, we were going to talk about today. I didn't realize that this is stuff that needs to change my life. If you want to pray with someone, feel free to get in touch. Reach out to me, mike at lakebaldwinchurch.com. Um, if you'd like me to send you a copy of my sermon notes, I could do that in case you weren't able to write stuff down or the sermon will be posted. But I would really encourage you to chew on these words of Scripture and these five things and to reflect on them, not so that you would be fall into despair, as I said, but to realize that Christ, through the gospel, wants to give you power and strength and hope in your life. This is stuff that is designed to set you free. And you guys, some of us are stuck. Some of us are stuck. Let's get unstuck. Robert Fulgham, who wrote the book, All I Really Need to Know, I Learned in Kindergarten. I want to give you something really cool for you to think about as you leave today. Think about the church. Think about, about this group. This is the body. We're members of one another. Robert Fulgham said this about children when they go out into the world. He says, when you go out into the world, watch out for traffic, hold hands, and stick together. Let's do that. Let's pray. Lord, I want to take a moment just to sit in the gospel here for a second, just honestly with each other. And I want to pray a special prayer for those among us who are discouraged by bitterness and by injustice, who find it difficult to forgive others. Lord, this is one of the most challenging parts of the gospel. And yet you have given us your word because you love us. And Lord, we thank you that you've not only given us the challenge of your word, but you have given us the Holy Spirit. You have given us the gospel. We have Christ in us. Enable us to live in this new community through the power of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.